Heavenly Father, we just thank you this for this evening to come together. Thank you for the freedom you give us to, to meet together in spirit and truth. We thank you most of all for your son Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Father, as we look into the history of this of these people, we just pray that you would reveal to us whatever it is you wish to to draw us closer to you. May you be exalted. May your body be edified. We thank you again for all you do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last, last week we studied the bare bones originals of Quakers. I mean, we just looked at George Fox, and that was really about it. And I was felt it was really important to hone in on his personal experience because it really boils down to the fact that Jesus Christ can and does dwell in the believer, and He leads him to all truth and can teach the believer Himself. We were told as much in places like John 14, uh, 26, um, and um, 1 John 2, 27. And so the outgrowth of this belief for George Fox was that, firstly, ministers can be qualified ministers of God without educational pedigree. <laughs> in his day, that was Cambridge or Oxford. Secondly, priests and pastors were and are not mediators or the only way that God communicates to his people. He communicates to us personally, and furthermore, he can communicate relevantly to where we're at on any day and age. So this doesn't mean that Fox ever threw out the scriptures. In fact, uh, biographers said that he knew the scriptures almost internally. And, but it also meant that believers can be taught and they can learn directly by God, especially when reading the scriptures. But also, I'm sure you've been places and there hasn't been a Bible nearby and you felt God say something to you. <laughs> Coupled with this belief, we saw that George Fox was largely appalled by the hypocrisy of his day, that, that people just saw God as something theologically to understand, but personally there seemed to be a lack of purity or piety. And uh, my intention was last week to, to look at those origins and beginnings, but we just really looked at George Fox, and so we're going to cover a lot tonight, because we're going to look more of the explosion of Quakerism, and then we're going to look at over 200 years of its history, and I, I try to got that down to a bearable length. <laughs> and uh, and people were disagreeing on who George Fox was or who the Quakers were. That's what they were splitting over. Next week, we're going to talk about evangelical friends today, and maybe I'll look a little bit at the polity of church, how our church is set up and many Quaker meetings are set up. And then last week, we're going to cover the doctrines and tenets. So that's kind of where we're headed. And um, a reminder about a few of the resources available. Some of you, I gave you Meet the Friends. Uh, pamphlets, um, Following Jesus by Paul Anderson's really good book. It's on Amazon or it's Barclay Press. That's the bookstore kind of with our yearly meeting. And um, Paul's really good at looking over the theological distinctions and pulling out scriptures and showing you where they're from. A book that I'm really reading about our denomination is this one. It's called The Garden of the Lord. It was written in the 60s, back when our yearly meeting was called Organ Yearly Meeting. And that was a guy, a guy named Ralph Beebe. A book I came across, I'm, I'm listening to some lectures online to kind of help me to lecture you, is this book right here, The Rich Heritage of Quakerism. And I even noticed the epilogue is by Paul Anderson, and so I figured anything that that guy probably puts his name on is you can almost trust. But that's a, this is a really, I, I think it's a really good book that's on Amazon also. 
And, um, and then also, I didn't put it up here, but again, if you want to read like a book of just the one Quaker kind of expressing his Quakerness, I guess, is Thomas Kelly's A Testament of Devotion. That's a early 1900s book. All that being said, we're, we're going to pick up from where we left off. Fox had this moment. He, he sees the personal practical truth that God speaks directly to the believer. He's really disillusioned of the Christianity of his day in England, the Church of England, was the only legal church that one could attend. However, there were Baptists, Presbyterians, Unitarians, Puritans, Separatists. And so Fox, again, had been having this personal wrestling, like something was missing from each of these people that, that couldn't help him. So here are all these church and folks, but none of them really helped Fox. In fact, a lot of them were, were mean to him. And so George Fox, again, has this moment I brought up at the end of last week, but he has this moment where he says again, when all my hopes in them and in all men were gone, so that I had nothing outwardly to help me, nor could I tell what to do, then, oh, then I heard a voice which said, there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. And when I heard it, my heart did leap for joy. Then the Lord let me see why there were none upon the earth that could speak to my condition, namely, that I might give him all the glory. For all are concluded under sin and shut up in unbelief as I had been that Jesus Christ might have the preeminence who enlightens and gives grace and faith and power. Thus, when God doth work, who shall hinder it? And he says, this I knew experimentally. And if you know any other liberal Quakers, I read George Fox and I wonder where they come from. <laughs> because what George Fox is saying is just to me right on the money, as it were. But he starts spreading this message, and others are convinced of what he is saying, and this truth is so magnificent upon the, these people that they can't help but spread this message. It's a rediscovery of a spirit-led Christian life. The spirit isn't a believer. There will be fruit. There will be purity and personal piety. And so Fox and his gathering friends began to call themselves friends of truth. And they felt, and actually they were also called publishers of truth, because back in this day, you think about Thomas Paine and Common Sense and the Revolutionary War, well, this was a day where there was massive pamphlets flying around, and Quakers began publishing their, their doctrines, and so they were called publishers of truth. They felt that professional ministers and educated ministers were hindering or obstructing folks from the truth rather than sharing it. So talking about a theological knowledge-based religion versus also a practical living-out religion. In fact, many call George Fox a pre-Wesleyan holiness preacher because John Wesley came after George Fox, and George Fox was so heavy on holiness living. And so was John Wesley, and that's what John Wesley is remembered for. Um, if we are believers, there should be spiritual fruit and, and love evident in our lives. Kind of the groundbreaking moment of Quakers, plural, occurs at a place called Pendle Hill. <coughs> And it feels a little anticlimactic, as George Fox writes about it himself, because he writes in his journal, As we traveled, we came near a very great hill called Pendle Hill, and I was moved of the Lord to go up to the top of it, which I did with difficulty. It was so very steep and high. When I come to the top, I saw the sea bordering upon Lancashire. From this top of the hill, the Lord let me see in what places he had a great people to be gathered. And then... He goes on to say in his journal, he comes down the hill, gets some water to be refreshed, and he moves on. 
And it's this paragraph, though, that many people refer to kind of the moment where the Quaker movement is really realized and it's moving, uh, that when Fox sees this great people to be gathered, it's on. <laughs> you know. And so, in fact, William Penn, a well-known Quaker, he writes about this moment, and he, he's, he has it with a bit more pizzazz <laughs> as he writes about George Fox, and he says in 1652... He being in his usual retirement to the Lord upon a very high mountain in some of the hither parts of Yorkshire, as I take it, his mind exercised towards the Lord. He had a vision of the great work of God in the earth and of the way that he was to go forth to begin it. He saw people as thick as motes in the sun that should in time be brought home to the Lord that there might be but one shepherd and one sheepfold in all the earth. And so as people hear this message, they start preaching. Uh, there is a traveling preaching group known as the Valiant Sixty. And uh, this is made up of men, of women, and even youth. And uh, it is these people, they will interrupt services um, at, at um, state churches. There was an old law that allowed lay preaching after the sermon. So Fox and his growing crowd would take usage of this law and sometimes denounce or challenge the ministers and preach the recovered doctrines that George Fox had, had heard of. By some bizarre coincidence, but it was most likely intentional, this law was suddenly made illegal <laughs> in England that allowed for people to preach after the sermons. People could not lay preach at churches anymore, but the, the friends felt bound by conscience to speak out anyways, and sometimes they would interrupt sermons. This was a drawing of George Fox wearing his hat in church. You know, men were not supposed to wear hats in church, but he's playing, he's, he's making a statement. So, well, when the friends are suddenly breaking the law by interrupting sermons, persecution starts happening. And there are several occasions of when friends are almost treated like rabble-rousers at bars, except for they're being literally thrown out of churches, landing on the, the steps leading up to cathedrals and rolling down and um, just to give you an instance from George Fox's journals, he writes that after a meeting with friends, he felt led to go to a church. And he writes, I went up to them and began to speak, but they immediately fell upon me, the clerk up with his Bible as I was speaking, and struck me on the face with it, so that my face gushed out with blood, and I bled exceedingly in the steeple house. I would... uh Take a pause here that many of the friends called the early churches that were not friends steeple houses because they believed that the church is the people and not any of the buildings. So they would call the churches that weren't friends steeple houses and they would call the places they met meeting houses because we just meet here to do church. So, so he said he bled exceedingly in the steeple house, so probably a state church. The people cried, let, let us have him out of the church. When they had got me out, they beat me exceedingly threw me down, turned me over a hedge, then afterwards dragged me through a house into the street, stoning and beating me as they dragged me along so that I was all over besmeared with blood and dirt. They got my hat from me, which I never had again. Yet, when I was got upon my legs, I declared the word of life and showed them the fruits of their teacher and how they dishonored Christianity. He says, after a while, I got into the meeting again amongst friends. And the priest and people coming by my house, I went with friends into the yard and there spoke to the priest and the people. The priest scoffed at us and called us Quakers. 
But the Lord's power was so over them, and the word of life was declared in such authority and dread to them, that the priest fell a-trembling himself, and one of the people said, Look how the priest trembles and shakes. He has turned a Quaker also. <laughs> when the meeting was over, friends departed, and I went without my hat to Balby about seven or eight miles. He's really concerned about his hat. <laughs> friends were much abused that day by the priest and his people, insomuch that some moderate justices hearing of it, two or three of them came and sat at the town to examine the business. He that had shed my blood was afraid of having his hand cut off for striking me in the church, as they called it, but I forgave him and would not appear against them. About 15,000 friends were jailed for the first 25 years, among them 450 of them dying. They were charged with everything from not paying tithes to the state church, to Sabbath breaking because to a friend of friends beating itself was Sabbath breaking, to refusal to honor magistrates or take oaths or do military service or unlawful assemblies, and they were charged with plotting against the government. Uh, George Fox himself was imprisoned eight times for a total of about six years, uh, time-wise after all of his in incarcerations were added up. Dying was caused from everything from imprisonment conditions to throwing Quakers in the stockades, whipping them, stripping them, beating them. Meanwhile, again, some received heavy fines. Some of them were transported to colonies. Another well-known theologian for the Quakers, a guy named Robert Barclay, he writes, uh, well, I guess I didn't have it on my slideshow, but he says, um, without regard to any opposition whatsoever, or what they might meet with, the Quakers went up and down as they were moved of the Lord, preaching and propagating the truth in marketplaces, highways, streets, and public temples. Though daily beaten, whipped, bruised, hailed, and imprisoned, therefore, yea, when sometimes the magistrates have pulled down their meeting houses, they have met the next day openly upon the rubbish. And so by innocency kept their possession and ground, being properly their own, and their right to meet and worship God, uh, being not forfeited to any, so that when the armed men have come to dissolve them, it was impossible for them to do it unless they have killed everyone. When the malice of their opposers stirred them to take shovels and throw rubbish upon them, there they stood unmoved, being willing, if the Lord should, should so permit, to have them be buried there alive, witnessing for them. As this patient but yet courageous way of suffering made the persecutors work heavy and wearisome unto them, so the courage and the patience of the sufferers, using no resistance, nor bringing any weapons to defend themselves, nor seeking any ways revenge upon such occasions, did secretly smite the hearts of the persecutors. So in other words, they were so pacifistic and non-resistant that the persecutors were just getting tired. You know, they felt like, well, you're not provoking us. It's not like we can kill you. That would be weak of us. And it says that this sort of attitude slowly ate away at the hearts of those that were persecuting the friends. There are some more interesting anecdotes I'll skip over. I included some of them in your outlines um, about prison ministry that George Fox did. But suffice it to say, again, this non-resistance to persecution eventually gets their persecutors off their backs. One guy named John Sykes, a biographer of Quakers, he says, Beat a drum, as it was sometimes tried to drown any words being spoken. Friends settled easily into silence. <laughs> Throw all the men into prison, and the women and the children continues with the meeting. Throw the women after the men, and the children continued alone. 
That's how uh, dedicated these friends were to meeting. I want to talk a little bit about the Valiant Sixty, who were preaching all over the English countryside. They usually went forth two by two. Seemed to be a little bit of a good biblical precedent for that. And they went everywhere, churches, marketplaces, jails, homes, etc. But even more so, outside of the countryside of England, two friends went to Rome to try to convert the Pope. <laughs> they were unsuccessful. <laughs> one was hanged. The other one was in prison three years in a madhouse. One Quaker, her name is Mary Fisher, traveled alone on foot 600 miles to visit the Sultan of Turkey to try to convert him out of Muslim. She was unsuccessful. However, she reported that he received her courteously, he heard her, he respected her. <laughs> Letters were sent to nearly all the rulers of Europe from Quakers, and there was even an unsuccessful attempt to reach the Emperor of China. <laughs> now, I feel I should make mention of a few peculiar things about these early Quakers, the Valiant Sixty, a few things where I'm afraid if you heard in other places, you might cock your head and say, I don't remember friendly history class for Kevin to say that. <laughs> Rather convenient. So, first though, I want to preface this with a scripture you may not know that's in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 20. I'll just read the entire chapter for you. It's only, I think, six verses. And it says, In the year that the chief commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. During that time, the Lord had spoken through Isaiah, son of Amos, saying, Go take off your sackcloth and remove the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. The Lord says, As my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years, as a sign and omen against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old alike, naked and barefoot, with bared buttocks, to Egypt's shame. Those who made Cush their hope, in Egypt their boast will be dismayed and ashamed, and the inhabitants of this coastland will say on that day, Look, that is what has happened to those we relied on and fled for our help to rescue us from the king of Assyria. Now how will we escape? So, if you missed it, God told Isaiah to preach naked, so he did. Um, that takes guts. I don't think I'll ever do that. You're welcome. Another interesting passage we won't look at, but you're welcome to later, is Ezekiel chapter 4. And Ezekiel is basically told to dramatize a siege of Jerusalem with primitive action figures. <laughs> and then he's told to lay down next to it on his left side for a year. So he does just that. Just bizarre, symbolic behavior. We have accounts of Quaker women preaching naked. We also have accounts of men and women wearing sackcloth and ashes when they preached. Now, we'll talk about the Quaker distinction of women preaching more in our last session, but we have an account of Elizabeth Fletcher in 1654 who preached naked in a marketplace at Oxford. And the reason being, she stated that the Oxford Church uh, School was churning out hypocritical clergymen, that they weren't righteous clergymen, that God was going to strip them naked. So that was her bizarre reason for why she wanted to preach naked. You can do what you want with that. <laughs> we don't have any comments one way or another about other Quakers, what they said about her, or what George Fox thought. He was still alive. We don't know if he was aware of it. He probably was. I don't know. I haven't come across any record of him talking about it, at least. 
But Quakers were kind of this group who really changed social norms. Their strong beliefs in God speaking to his people personally um, really recaptured, recaptured this idea of equality. Now, not the idea of equality that makes some conservatives twitch today, but equality of just men, women, races, no matter who you are, you have value. No matter what you do, you have value. Everyone's the same value, equal value under God. And uh, back in the 1600s, you certainly had classes of people. There was the gentry and the peasants and the workers and the servants. And um, I should note that most clergymen were from noble families and gentry. Kind of the, uh, I'm the third son, I'm not going to receive the family estate, so I'll join the noble profession of clergy. Whereas the valiant 60 were made up of, again, of people from all threads of society, from gentry to peasants to youth to elderly, it was said that George Fox knew Oliver Cromwell. He wrote to him in letters. Oliver Cromwell was kind of the unspoken king of England during the Civil Wars. He never accepted, Cromwell never accepted the position personally, but he led anyway because nobody else would. And so Fox would talk to him, though, in a normal face-to-face dialect, like we would say to the president, Mr. President, or in that day you might say, Your Majesty, well, George Fox would talk with Cromwell in his letters with no such pleasantries, but just how you and I would talk in the corridors after service. And this was not because Fox was inconsiderate, but his faith was that God made Cromwell and George Fox with the same sort of value over each, so why should people designate other people in other classes? What differences of values is there between the poorest man and the richest powerful ruler? No difference of value in God's eyes. Each soul is redeemable. Each person is worthy of God's love. And so Fox and the Quakers really wore this belief on their sleeves. Quakers were definitely movers and shakers. For being a peaceable people, they were energetic in what they called and what many faiths called, I shouldn't say faiths, but many denominations of Christianity, called the Lamb's War. Uh, that is God's view of society, the countercultural society versus the worldly society. And Quakers were diligent in trying to change society, and they were successful in a lot of ways. Um, even scholars today will credit Pennsylvania and Quaker thought to be the foundation of American society, especially when it comes to equality. Uh, the American dream, you come to America, doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you did, everyone has a shot, that sort of thing. Um, at the same time, um, Quakers were energetic in the last half of the 1600s. However, by the 1700s, uh, there was a change coming for the Quaker people. And um, I listened to a pastor a while back. Well, I, I listened to him quite a bit when I lived in Moscow. And he had a church that was founded in 1995. And by the latter half of the first decades of the 2000s, around 08, around 09, into the early teens, his church had exploded into a couple of thousand. And I believe he was, um, I believe he was seeing close to 2,000 people. And probably in a sermon about 2010 or so, this was, there was a series on just this movement that Jesus had done in his church. And I remember what he said in one sermon. He says, when God does something in a people, the movement explodes and the mission seems successful. People often have a tendency of wanting to institutionalize that move, movement and make it a museum and no longer a mission. And that was rather prophetic for this pastor because by 2016 his church failed. However, 
This is kind of what happens with the Quakers. After a century of vibrant, energetic movement, the Quakers enter what many call the quietest years. And there was always in those first years kind of a mixture of vibrant churches and then it was open worship like we have and silent worship with a mixture of people speaking and, and when Quakers met for silence it was always broken. Some Quakers have always pointed out in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, we know that the believers spoke in tongues as and to witness the to those that were gathered, but they didn't speak their sermons from other tongues because they studied well. <laughs> but uh, Acts 2 4 tells us, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And same with 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, both of prophecy and tongues, and he speaks of them both as a gift that the Spirit can give instantaneously in the gathering of believers. So this is what the Quakers were going for. They wanted an utterance from God. They didn't want a guy like me to study all week and get up and give a prepared sermon. By the time of the 1700s, though, roughly 50 years after the Quakers formed, some were trying to institutionalize the movement. <laughs> and what I mean by that is when many began to see what God was doing and they were looking for the strengths, not in what God was doing, but they were looking for the tools and the outward signs of the movement, and they wanted to keep those going. And uh, so it became, what did the early Quakers do that made them so successful? How can we polish it up? How can we ensure the good stuff stays and, and the bad stuff goes? And we do this often. This is what happens whenever you're more Baptist than Christian, more Quaker than Christian, more Nazarene. We have our pet doctrines, and we want to say we're unique, and we've lasted because we met in silence and we waited on the Holy Spirit, unlike all those other churches. And that's where we find our unique stabilizing catapult that will ensure our continued success. That was kind of the thought that was going on. Well, the reality is, is God will ensure a movement as long as he wants to, <laughs> and as long as the people within that movement don't look to the devices that God used in the movement, but keep riding the wave of God's grace. One work by a guy named Hugh Turford in 1702, he called it the grounds of a holy life, and he wrote, we must retire from all outward objects and silence all the desires and wandering imaginations of the mind, that in the profound silence of the whole soul we may hearken to the ineffable voice of the divine teacher. We must listen with an attentive ear, for it is a still small voice, but how seldom it is that the soul keeps itself silent enough for God to speak. And so there was this fear of, quote, creaturely activity, <laughs> and running ahead of the Spirit, and hindering the gathering truly on God. So much so, the earlier vibrant and, and activistic expressive form of Christianity that Quakers did around their founding began to subside under a really more stoic, quiet attitude. Many friends' meetings were held in complete silence. In fact, one traveling minister reported having sat through 22 consecutive meetings with only a single break in silence. <laughs> so there was a lot of just come here, let's sit for an hour or two together and say nothing and go home. There was really this overthinking <laughs> that characterized some of this mindset. There would be no singing because it was thought that, well, surely the Holy Spirit wouldn't lead every single person to sing the same song at once. <laughs> and uh, why God would not want to do that, who knows, but that was the thought. 
And again, kind of an institutionalizing of Quakerism. They, they took this adoption of a spirit-led service to the extreme that anything, and by anything we mean anything, that was not blatantly, obviously led by the spirit was not allowed in the service. Um, who made, uh, who made all the Quakers as they gathered for worship the judge of what was led by the spirit? I don't know. <laughs> It apparently did away, though, with the thought that God could providentially bring about a service on Sunday. You know, whenever we do programmed worship, and by that I mean songs and a, a sermon, we, we are relying on the providence of God that he's working through all of our means. There's a reason I picked those songs. There's a reason I studied the sermon. Apparently, though, he only worked to the Quakers at this time through miraculous and instantaneous prompting. Praying aloud was also pretty much forbidden because prayer should be a quiet thing between God and person, silent prayer. And it was during this time, since there was not common preachers, um, the only way a society of friends would show leadership was facing benches. Um, we have this picture in our back coffee room, and you, you think about these benches up here. These benches are, are showing the elders of a given church. Um, this is because if you walked in, if there was no sermon, you would never know who the leaders of the church were if you wanted to talk to them about something. So this is where the facing bench came into play, and some Quaker meetings, evangelical meetings, even still have a facing bench. Um, at yearly meeting, our annual sessions that we go to sometimes, they'll have a few chairs up there behind the speaker, and it'll be the administrative council and the elders of the yearly meeting just sitting behind the preacher, and the idea is to be praying for him as he's speaking. Um, this is also when some of the more distinctions of Quakers were codified, if you will. Uh, one codifying was plain dress. Quakers were often in blacks and grays, symbolizing plain lifestyle, and, and nobody wore a preacher's robe like the, the more liturgical churches because all were priests. Everybody's a priest. Um, up until John Wesley in the mid-1700s and his movement, as I said earlier, uh, Quakers were well known for their personal piety, their personal, you know, some churches still have hypocrites who give a sermon on Sunday and then go get drunk afterwards. Quakers wouldn't do that. Obviously, Anabaptists like Mennonites and Amish were known for their personal piety, but Quakers were a bit more approachable, and because their integrity were as honest, polite people were known, it began to really serve them well in the business world. <laughs> uh, 18th century England saw the rise of small industry. Quakers were the ones most often approached because they were honest businessmen. You, what you get is what you ask for is what you would get. And um, because they have a very sincere testimony to integrity that served them well. And before too long, they were pretty rich. <laughs> and this was an attractive element to outsiders, why people wanted to join the society uh, of friends. And, and it really became, in some ways, a separate society from the worldly culture. Members of Quaker meeting houses could only marry other Quakers. They disallowed Quakers to marry other Christians. So Christy and I couldn't have get married in this era. <laughs> but uh, there was an excommunication of members who did not live up to discipline or faith and practice, as we call it today. Uh, Quaker meeting houses were also cultural and civic centers. Uh, Quakers handled business problems there. They handled family feudal problems at the meeting houses. There was little usage for court or police force or any officials to be involved with Quakers. Quakers handled all of, their, all of that themselves. I actually have a few interesting books on Nantucket. I have one about the, uh, uh, basically what, 
inspired uh, Moby Dick, the actual sinking of a ship called the Essex, and it was handled by Quaker businessmen. Nantucket was well known for being a big Quaker epicenter for many years. And I was reading through a, a history book on Nantucket, and just a lot of the stuff that happened in their meeting houses instead of the courts really struck me, like bank problems and things like that. There's, there was almost this kind of Utah Mormon elitist attitude with Quakers. Um, but at the same time, they were still approachable and still nice to others. By the mid-1700s, so about 100 years after George Fox, though Quakers were businessmen and a little bit elitist, they began to have a public name for activism as well. Um, some scholars believe that, that their activism and humanitarian aid was a bit more of a reaction. It was a reaction because um, they wanted to serve the broader society in ways that Jesus would, but Quakers got a bad name, especially in America because of two wars. <laughs> and American Revolution, being pacifist, Quakers did not fight, um, and they were branded loyalists. In the Civil War, they did not fight. This ostracized them publicly, and many Quakers decided to pull out of politics, which was a big difference, because Quakers were, again, they founded Pennsylvania, they were heavily influenced in the formation of America, but they pulled out of politics altogether whenever people were war hawking. So they decided to focus their efforts on humanitarian efforts. Quakers really led the way in the abolitionist movement because of their belief in equality over all human beings. Not every Quaker was an abolitionist, but by and large they were. In England, they were behind social reform, uh, relief for the poor, improved education, public health, prison reform, because especially the early Quakers were in prison, saw a need for it. Um, many Quakers, being pietists, were big on temperance as well. Um, Quakers were also championing better conditions for the insane, instead of showcasing them at circus acts or sentencing them to madhouses, as many insane people were. Quakers really got this name of rooter for the underdog because, again, their belief in equal value, sanctity of human life, no matter age, sex, or race, everyone has value because they're all created by God. By the 19th century, though, we saw that the Quakers were well known for humanitarian aid and their business and so forth, but something is glaringly lacking. Any of you want to make a guess as to what that was? It could be said that this span of time from about the 1700s to the middle of the 1800s is called the quietest years because it really lacked evangelical zeal. They weren't out converting people. They weren't out trying to proselytize too much. There was little desire to see others convinced of the biblical truths that Fox and the Valiant 60 had shared as there were in the first half century that they were around. However... By the 1800s, there was an evangelical revival taking place found in the Wesleyan movement. John Wesley and the Great Awakening and the Holiness movement was really taking over the American continent. However, so was Darwinism, naturalism, humanism, and basically an aversion to Christianity was also taking root. And it was dividing lots of churches. Presbyterians were breaking, Baptists were breaking, Methodists were breaking, Unitarians were breaking from Congregationalists, and and when it comes to Quakers, I've humorously decided to note that there's a series of overreactions taking place. Um, the first overreaction takes place with a guy named Elias Hicks. I'm sorry, this is the best picture I could find of him. He looks pretty grumpy. <laughs> but uh, um, Elias Hicks, 
is in the late 1820s. He's a Quaker preacher from New York. And he sees this Wesleyan holiness revival type movement. And like many folks of many denominations, Hicks has this aversion. And he says, well, we're Quakers and that, that movement is affecting all the mainline churches, but we've always been the different ones. And so he sees the church that he grew up in, really the quietest Quakers, they're slipping away and they're being swallowed up by the evangelicals. So the Orthodox Quakers are going the way of evangelicals. He feared, Elias Hicks feared, that evangelicals overemphasized scripture and de-emphasized really the core tenet of Quakerism, and that is personal revelation or being taught personally by God. Not only with Hicks, but with most liberal theologians, which is what Elias Hicks was, of all stripes, there is this disagreement over the nature of man. On one hand, the same hand as Elias Hicks was a basic belief that people were essentially good. And in Quaker speak, this manifested itself in, in Hicks, and Quakers who believed like Hicks, that John 1.9 says that the true light gives light to everyone, so everyone must be good, and anyone has God in them, and anyone who submitted to his leading would live in his will and, and uh, says what God would wish him to say. Now, on the other hand, we also know original sin. All people are bad and need redeemed by Jesus. Hicks didn't believe that. So Hicks overreacts to the evangelical movement. That's why I'm saying it's an overreaction. And he wants to retain what he believes Quakerism is in the quietest era. And he basically takes the opposing ends of what evangelicals are saying. So instead of overemphasizing scripture, he underemphasizes it. And instead of over underemphasizing personal and continual revelation revealed to the believer by the Spirit, Hicks overemphasizes that and he makes that the primacy of what it means to be a believer, or at least what a Quaker is. And so, one quote that really captures what he believes is he said, How much more reasonable it is to suppose that an inspired teacher in the present day should be led to speak more truly and plainly to the state of the people to whom he is led to communicate that any doctrine were delivered 1,700 years ago to a people very differently circumstanced to those in this day, I leave to every rational mind to judge. Now, of course, we would say that, yeah, we know that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, but we're taking his principles and applying it to our lives today, and we're taking his doctrines and speaking it a way that's understood today. So Quakers were trying to reason with Hicks, and he was pressed, and he explained that he only believed parts of the, actually, he believed parts of the Bible were false, or they were translated erroneously. It was also only necessary, he said, to believe in portions of Scripture, and Hicks even stated that other teachers of other religions, like Confucius, could be as divinely inspired as the Scriptures. Furthermore, Hicks denied that Christ was a Savior for all people, only a Savior for the people in Christ's time. Hicks also denied that Christ was the, even the inner light. He, uh, he says, well, well, Quakers said, well, this can't be tolerated. <laughs> and so a split happened, and those who followed Hicks became known as the Hicksites. And uh, this split happens in 1827 in Philadelphia, and soon other yearly meetings would follow, and we'll talk a little bit next week about some of the remnants of Hicksite theology today that are still around. As splits often do, the two sides that split will really sharpen and deepen the conviction of both sides. For a while, if you had both in there, they're both kind of moderate. Well, if you 
kick one side out, the other side kind of gets a little bit more fiercer as well. So there were the Hicksites, and then there were what many called the Orthodox friends, and they, they claimed that this was the group that was staying allegiant to what Fox originally envisioned, and I believe they were, or what friends of the truth were. And this Orthodox group insisted on the deity of Jesus and the authenticity and the authority of the scriptures. Ten years after the Hicksite split, a guy named Joseph John Gurney came along. He is a British friend. He came to America for a three-year tour. He was part of the British and Foreign Bible Society. That's kind of a group that was like the Gideons. They just printed a bunch of Bibles and distributed them as much as they could in all the languages they could. They're still around today. I think they have a different name. But it gives you a bit of a foreshadow for this guy. He, he kind of loved the scriptures. Gurney was also a preacher. Again, Quakers did have churches and they did have preachers, among preachers like George Fox. <laughs> and so he was a traveling minister and he, he, uh, um, his preaching brought revivals to Quakers in those years. And to give you an idea as to what Joseph Gurney believed, um, he said, since Christ died for all men, you know, this guy sounds <laughs> relevant, um, and has thus placed within their reach the free gift of justification unto life, since such is the natural proneness of mankind to sin, so he believed that mankind were prone to sin, that none can avail themselves of the benefit of the death of Christ to receive the free gift of God, except through the influence of the Holy Spirit, and since it cannot without greater reverence be imagined that the mercy of God and Christ thus freely offered should in any instance be merely nominal and nugatory in point of fact. Man, you can follow this guy right away, can't you? <laughs> I cannot but draw the conclusion that a share of this influence of the Spirit is bestowed upon by all men by which they are enlightened and by which they may be saved. And so he's preaching what most Christians preach today, that you're drawn to God by the Holy Spirit. You can be saved because the Spirit has wooed you to God. There is probably, he says, no body of Christians who have taken more pains than friends have done to adjoin upon their members a frequent perusal of the scriptures of truth. He says, I think Quakers are the people in all of Christian history who have pressed their members most. Be in the Bible, be in the Bible, be in the Bible. Friends have always asserted that it was given by inspiration of God, and when our forefathers were defamed by their adversaries and falsely accused of unsound principles, they always appealed to Scripture as the only authoritative test by which their sentiments could be tried. And so he's saying, whenever our forefather Quakers like George Fox were saying, you're preaching garbage, they always appealed to Scriptures. That's weird. The Scripture says here, you know, and so if you're thinking this guy sounds a bit more spot on, you're in good company, our church and our denomination really descend from the movement this guy is about. John Joseph Gurney. Now, again, at this time, most Quakers were considered Orthodox, which Gurney was a part of, or they were considered Hicksite, that liberal strand that broke away in the late 1820s. Gurney came in the 1830s, and in the early 1840s, a third guy showed up for the third overreaction, which I call overreaction. Again, the second overreaction, which I think was good, was an overreaction that Gurney and the Quaker movement decided to align themselves more with evangelical Christianity. They were overreacting from Hicks, who went liberal, we're going to go conservative. And so this third overreaction was a guy named John Wilbur. He kind of shows up, and I, he takes what I think to be, um, oops, sorry, that was supposed to be a while ago. But 
he, he takes what I think to be a middle ground. Still part of the Orthodox friends, so John Wilbur did not go with Hicksites. However, when Gurney shows up, he looks at him and he gets the feeling or he gets this attitude of, wait, Quakers have never been with the mainline groups. They're not Baptists, they're not Methodists. And while Wilbur does not adapt or adopt, I mean, Elias Hicks' views, he's not going to go with Joseph John Gurney either. His biggest beef with Gurney, from what I can read, is Gurney's strong attachment to preaching. Which I think is ironic, because like I said, Gurney would be in company historically with 60 well-known preachers at the beginning of the origins of Quakerism. Wilbur, though, was concerned about losing the core tenet of spiritual guidance or the Holy Spirit. Now, unlike Hicks, Wilbur believed in the scriptures, though, and he believed in Jesus' death and resurrection, but he believed strongly that the Christian is to be led primarily by the Spirit. He writes, A disposition is making its appearance in diverse places in this nation, he's in America, and among friends to think very little of the cross of Christ, practically, and to plead for liberality, both of faith and practice. The perceptible influence of the Holy Spirit is mournfully depreciated by many members of our society. Some of them, in conspicuous standing, are now disposed to put the scriptures in the place of the Spirit and seem ready to hold them as the only rule of faith and practice or guidance of Christians. And so, Wilbur is saying, what Christ did at the cross is seemed to be thought less of. You think about Hicks, well, Jesus died for those people in those days. So, Wilbur disagrees with that. He laments about that. And then he goes on to say, people plead for liberality of both faith and practice. And so he laments that people are winking at sin and are loose with theology. But then his last lament is really for Wilbur, his reasoning to take this agreement with Gurney, and that he's basically saying people are taking scriptures and they're putting them in the place where the Holy Spirit should be. And he's saying that, that they're holding them up as the only rule of faith and practice or the guiding of Christians, and for Wilbur, that's not right. While he does not disagree with Scripture, he doesn't see Scripture as the, the, the paramount necessity for the Christian life to lead us. He sees that the Spirit's leadership and the guidance is the primary guide, and he unashamedly stated that the Spirit trumps Scriptures in terms of leadership. He says it this way. He says, it is very evident that if we should come to believe that the scriptures of themselves are a sufficient guide in all walks of Christian life, then our silent spiritual worship will ere long sink into disuse, and our faith in the immediate renewing of the divine spirit on every occasion of the ministry will be exploded. This result is a consequence that must avoid, unavoidably, can't say that, unavoidably follow such a faith concerning the Holy Scriptures, however excellent they are, is always in subordination to the spirit which gave them forth. Now, a few of my books and sources that I was reading said that it is likely that Gurney and Wilbur were just misreading each other. They were, you talk to Gurney, of course Gurney would say, well, of course I believe the Holy Spirit is an important doctrine of leading believers. And you talk to Wilbur, he would likewise say, yes, the Bible is important, read it. <laughs> However, Wilbur saw that Gurney's evangelical bent was really what he thought was taking a key tenet of classical Quakerism to a lower level, and that tenet being the Spirit's immediate and primary guide in Christian living. So, Wilbur objects to the evangelical bent, and so now we have Hicksite friends, Gurneyite friends, also called Orthodox, and then 
today would be called evangelical friends. And then we have Wilburite friends, and his became known as primitive or even conservative friends. Conservative, not so much in a political meaning, but conservative as believed to be conservative to the original tenets of Quakerism, stripped of evangelical influences and stripped of Hicksite influences. Wilburites were also the only friends that really adapted a more plain people type attitude, simplicity, and plainness, and they maintain that today. I didn't have time, but I was going to show you a few pictures, or you can even find a few websites. They have three main yearly meetings today, the Wilburites do, and they look like Amish. They have plain dress, um, they, have, they do have a rule of discipline and a faith and practice, and as far as I can tell, they're still pretty much conservative Christians. None of them are really going the way of liberals, but they definitely have a more loose hold on the Bible as we would, probably. But that's where we're going to stop tonight. Um, it was long, but I'm glad I got through it all. We'll talk a little bit about these three groups again, uh, and where they're at in our day and age next week. We're going to focus kind of more so, though, on our spiritual heritage from the Gurneyites, um, Hicksites, uh, Gurneyites, Wilburites, bottom line, no matter where you're at, um, no matter what team you're on, you should probably be more so with Christ. <laughs> and so I uh, hope this has been informative, and I look forward to sharing more with you next week. So.